thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 134 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by our very good friend, Professor Tim Noakes. Tim shares with us all about the Banting for Babies trial, otherwise known as the Nutrition Trial of the Century. Learn all about Tim's journey, how you can put type 2 diabetes in remission, and what Tim is up to next in his so-called retirement. Let's welcome Professor Tim Noakes to the show. Hi, Tim. Thanks again for your time. Pleasure, Steph. Thanks for having me. You were on the show way back when we first started, and it's certainly been um, a big, you know, a big period of time for you since then. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, I just wanted you to um, tell us about. Well, let's start from the from the very start. Where did all the drama begin? It began in the reality as it began in about November 2013 when we published the book The Real Meal Revolution. And that really started a dietary revolution in South Africa and introduced this concept of the Banting low-carb, high-fat diet to South Africans. And the first people who got really angry with it were the dietitians because they thought that I was misplacing them. Mm. The South Africans were wanting to listen to me as a non-dietitian rather than to them. And it's very clear that they were looking to make sure that I was silenced. And because I am a medical practitioner, although I don't practice medicine, I am registered with the Health Professional Council of South Africa. And there are certain duties of care that a medical practitioner has to follow. Now, the Health Professional Council has no ruling on social media, none, no rules whatsoever. And in February 2014, I answered an, a, a tweet from a, a lady who we do not know whether she was breastfeeding or not. We do not know whether she had a child. That was never determined in the trial. We, all we do know is that probably she does exist. And uh, she asked a question whether her eating the Banting diet, and particularly whether she, if she was taking in cauliflower, whether that could cause wind in her baby. Now, she asked the question in a we state. She asked the we question, and I said it slightly wrongly. It wasn't an I question. So she said, would the LCHF and cauliflower cause winds in babies and moms? That was the question. So it was babies and moms, and that's critically important. And so I answered and essentially said that I, I really don't know about that. But then that, that wasn't the issue. The issue was I finished the tweet with seven words. Key is to wean baby onto LCHF. And that then caused a furor. And the head of the South African Dietetics Association uh, reported me within six hours to the Health Professional Council of South Africa. 
And then she began to tweet in capital letters whole things about how this was the most dangerous advice that could possibly happen. So that was in February 2014. And it took them, the HPCSA, about eight months before they finally decided to act against me. And they broke every rule on the way to charging me. And in a sense, the, the charge came that it was unprofessional conduct for for tweeting about breastfeeding on Twitter. But I hadn't actually tweeted on breastfeeding. It was on weaning, but that was never the part of the issue. So eventually, we began the court case in June 2015, and it went on till April this year, 2017. And the final, so we had 26 days in court. Uh, I gave testimony for nine days, four, five and a half days testimony and three and a half days cross-examination. We had three expert witnesses, Nina Teicholt from America, Zoe Harkom from Wales, and Karen Zinn from New Zealand. They testified for a further three days. We gave something like 6,000 pages of scientific testimony, well over a thousand slides and an incredible amount of information. And at the end of the day, we won the case 10-0. So there were 10 rulings and we won all 10 of them. But that wasn't good enough for the HPCSA. So they decided to appeal the case and we'll go back to court sometime, I suspect in the new year We've seen their documentation. It's a rehash of all the arguments they made in in the trial, none of which they could sustain. So I don't know why we have to go through it all again with another committee, but that's the state of play at the moment. Wow, such a huge, well, it's been years and years, hasn't it? No, so over three years now, and I can imagine um, your relief, and I did watch the footage of that you know that first <laughs> that first recognition for you when you were cleared of misconduct so it must have been you know such an am- amazing amount of relief obviously now very short lived yeah indeed it was and uh, it, it, you know we you only realize what stress you're under when you get out of it yeah. and we're not really yet out of it but we're much better space so what we've done, what we've taken time to write a book about the trial with Marika Sporos, who was this brilliant uh, investigative journalist, and she's done an amazing job. She, as you know, would w- tweeted from the trial. She tweeted every minute mm. <laughs> for for the the days that we were in court. She tweeted comments on on her Twitter line, and then she she wrote on her blog, foodmed.net. And I realised that that she's a genius in taking all the difficult information and putting it all together. And so that she took all the trial transcripts and all the testimony and extracted what was really important. And we've put that into a book and I've written the, because this, it starts actually like about two years before 2011 that I start to get demonized and targeted. And actually smeared, that's a better word. So I got smeared by my own colleagues in the medical profession. And that went on for for two years before the trial began. And in fact, it set up the, the, the sort of culture that it was okay to say anything you liked about Noakes in the media. And it didn't matter who you were, if you were a doctor, which is completely unethical. We, the rules in South Africa are that you may not attack another doctor in the public space. But this was happening on a weekly basis, and this encouraged people to say stuff that that they're going to regret now because it's all in the book. 
So I've got, I've written what happened leading up into the trial, what people said, what the science was, the real science. Well, they accused me of being unscientific. I said, well, actually, you're the non-scientist because there's no evidence for what you say. So that leads up. Then we have the trial, and then I've added uh, two big chapters on the science as I see it. It wasn't the 6,000 pages of testimony or 6,000 pages of evidence, but I've shortened it down to try and explain why the low-carb, high-fat diet is so successful in treating people with insulin resistance. And I take it right back to our evolutionary past and how that explains why humans are not designed to eat a lot of carbohydrate because we can't, we simply can't metabolize much of carbohydrate. So, so that's the book and it's coming out in November and it's called Nutrition on Trial and it's called Challenging Dietary, sorry, Nutritional Beliefs, Conventional Nutritional Beliefs. And it goes with my usual other book, which was uh, ch Challenging Beliefs. So this is Challenging Conventional Nutritional Beliefs. Yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be so many people that are going to love to hear the full story. And I think really fascinating with back to what you said about the research, you know, obviously with your statement that you made on Twitter about weaning the baby onto LCHF, um, I, I know what you meant. Like I know that you were intentionally encouraging real food, you know, full stop. Whereas okay. when we look at what the um, Health Professionals Council of South Africa or even the, the president for the Association of Dietetics in South Africa, you know, they're still talking about this traditional high-sugar, high-carbohydrate, highly-refined processed cereal, yet you're the one that's getting into trouble. Like, it's a terrible case of irony. <laughs> no, pre precisely. And, uh, you know, people say, well, would you change it? And in the trial, I said it would have been much easier if I just did real foods because then they couldn't have – you couldn't honestly take someone to court for saying real foods because you can't fool that one. But I said real foods is what we meant because that's the book. Read the book and you'll see it's real foods as you indicate. But uh, it's very difficult for these people because they're so controlled by industry and controlled by the processed food industry. They're utterly – their salaries are dependent on the – on the processed food industry. So as soon as you say anything that attacks real processed foods, they're going to fight back. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, I wanted to know, and as you mentioned as, as well, it's um, not just trial related. It obviously happened in South Africa where you had, um, you know, some harsh critics. Why do you think mm. they have been so harsh? And tell us more about the vested interest in the food industry? You know, this is something that we've we've really thought about quite heavily. And as soon as you mention it, people say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, but it's not. I mean, these people have to have a business and they have to protect their business. And they've been doing it very well for 50 years. And it seems to me that it begins with sugar because sugar must have known that it was in trouble 50 years ago. And they managed to confuse the public, much like the cigarette industry confused the public. And so we, we, there's very clear evidence that, that the sugar industry has a very strong control in South Africa of the dietetics profession. And three, two of, sorry, three of the expert witnesses charged that were used against me have strong connections with an organization for, called the International Life Sciences Institute, which is known to be a Coca-Cola front. And that was shown by Russ Green, who came out from America and did an investigation of who was behind the case. 
And the closest he could come was to say, well, it's very surprising that three of the expert witnesses against Noakes had links to this Coca-Cola funded company. So at, 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 a, at some level, it looks like Sugar and Coca-Cola were involved, maybe not directly in the case, but at least with the dietetics associations in South Africa. But where it really began was with the cardiologist, because I wrote a book, Challenging Beliefs, in 2011. I said, you know, that I didn't believe in the, the diet heart hypothesis, and I didn't think that statins were particularly helpful, and I thought that you'd rather do better if you just change your diet. And that then caused a furor amongst the, the cardiologists at my own university, and that led the university to, to attack me. And a number of academics at UCT, and particularly they wrote this most dreadful defamatory letter to the local newspaper. So four of the leading professors of the medical school wrote this incredibly defamatory letter. And that was really what upset me more than anything. So, and, and, and when we've tried to ask the university, don't you think this letter is defamatory? Don't you think this was inappropriate? They absolutely refused to comment. And, and, and they weren't. And now we, in the trial, we showed that the paper that was used to try me, the so-called Nordea review or meta-analysis of low-carbohydrate diets, we showed that it's got 14 material errors. And that when you correct those 14 material errors, the whole conclusion of the paper changes. So originally it says that the low-carb diet was no better than the low-fat diet on meta-analyses of these interventions of randomized controlled trials. When we corrected for all the errors that they'd made, it turned out that the low-carb diet outperformed the low-fat diet. And this was used throughout South Africa to demonize me and the Banting diet as being dangerous and not any better than anything else. Well, they could have said the opposite. They could have said that the low-fat diet's no, no better than the low-carb diet, than the low-carb diet, but they didn't. They reversed it. Now, if they had reported those data correctly, it would have said, actually, the low-carb diet's better than the low-fat diet, and they couldn't have sustained a campaign against me and against my book and against the movement. And I don't think they could have charged me. So when we asked the university, please, would you investigate this? Because these 14 material errors, the authors can't explain them. They've, we've published, and they've published a rebuttal, but they didn't address the issues. And the university says, well, it's not our problem. And it's astonishing because we know that the rules of the university are that if you have a suspect of fraud, any minor suspect of fraud, you must investigate it fully. And, and they refuse to do it. So, so these are the things that we just don't understand. Yeah, and it's not a conspiracy theory. I think you really have to understand science. I feel like people get really caught up in, you know, one hypothesis or one conclusion without exploring the actual data or who's funded the study or, you know, looking critically mm -hmm. at the arguments. And I think that's where we're getting really stuck. I mean, you obviously, unfortunately, cop it more than most people, but, <laughs> you know, people are really quick to jump and, and find you the science that um, disputes what you're saying, but they don't really yeah. understand what they're delivering in terms of their argument. No, exactly. And, and what I've tried to do in this book is to show the extent of the information that you have to understand. You can't just do randomized controlled trials and think they're going to give you the answers. You have to look back into paleoanthropology and understand the biochemistry and the physiology of the human. 
And only then can you get an idea of what we should be eating and what's good for us. And, and if you don't understand that, you, you have no hope. And unfortunately, it seems to me that most dietetics or, uh, organizations and most the teaching of most dietitians globally begins in 1977 with the U.S. dietary guidelines. And no one looks be, beyond that. And when you start to talk, at least in South Africa, to the dietitians, they really have no grasp of physiology and biochemistry and pathology and and biochemistry that just don't understand it. So you, you can't really discuss these difficult topics with them. And then they, they just say, well, we're evidence-based and all the evidence is on observational studies coming out of Harvard. <laughs> and, and we know that Harvard is not exactly the most independent um, medical school when it comes to nutritional and nutritional research. No, not even close, unfortunately. So <laughs> fascinating, obviously, this um, this initial situation was back in 2011 and then the saga around the tweet started in 2014. So here we are now in 2017 and you would have seen it more than anyone with Real Meal Revolution and the millions of people that you've helped worldwide. What has it been like for you in more recent years now that a greater majority of the world is waking up to how wrong we've been and that real food is the way forward? Has Have the critics shut up finally or is it still going on? Yeah. And <laughs> tell me more about that. Yeah, we went through the depths of despair in this trial, in the lead up to the trial, particularly when you, my own university turned its back on me and wrote this most defamatory letter. And to have your own profession and your own university do that to you is a dark moment because I've spent 40 years working really hard for the university and then to be dismissed in this way was pretty tough. So the only thing that kept us going really was firstly my wife's strength because she said we're not going to let these people beat us. But apart from that, it was the support of the public and ironically, the Real Meal Revolution started the problem for us, but it also was a solution. Because as you say, I can't walk down the street without being thanked. I, I can't open my emails without being thanked. The the phones that I receive, the phone calls that I receive thanking me for, for saving people's lives. And, the, and it's genuine. The people really appreciate what we've done for them. So that has kept us going. And we realize that ultimately we must win. But but you're quite right. The support of the public has been astonishing. And to give you an idea of the extent to which the Banting diet has caught on in South Africa, there's a Banting Facebook page called the Banting Seven Day Meal Plan Facebook page. They started two years ago when the word Banting, no one knew what it meant in South Africa. And today they have 800,000 members which is utterly astonishing for a Facebook page. And there's another one in Nigeria, which I think started around about the same time and influenced also by Real Meal Revolution, which has a million people on it. And they say their Facebook page says, we're reversing diabetes and obesity amongst the women of Nigeria with not a doctor or a dietitian in sight. Wow. <laughs> and so, what, about, what about the cauliflower sh shortage? I remember that story. And um, <laughs> I just think that's so funny to see. Um, basically, yes, you caused a direct cauliflower shortage in what, Cape Town, was it? Yes, that's correct. And, <laughs> and there's also been a butter shortage. And I know there's a butter shortage in Australia as well. Mm. So... So that's interesting. And then if you go to our the the wealthier uh, 
supermarkets, you'll find that they don't sell skim milk anymore, or it's it's much reduced, and the full cream milk is now just flying off this off this shelf so much so that there's now a shortage of cream because they're using the cream originally came from skim milk, so now they've got a problem with providing enough uh, cream. Yeah, of course. Very interesting times. You must be so proud to see what a large influence you've had on, yes, so many people's lives. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I see myself as you know a, a member of this movement because we all feed off each other and give each other strength, I think, because we've all been through tough times and it's good that that we're coming through together and finally we're making an impact. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's on a, you know, a very nice upward trend and it's only going to increase in terms of both speed and influence, which is beautiful to see that we're finally able to move away of the, from that dietary dogma of the last five decades. Yeah, exactly. And every day another celebrity makes a public statement, whether they're athletes or models or whatever, saying that this is the only diet for them. It's, it's really exciting to watch it. Uh, on, on next week, I'm discussing it with Dave Scott, who was one of my great heroes, the, the first great Ironman triathlete who won six triathlons in the 1970s, eight, sorry, the, yeah, 70s, 80s, on a high-carb diet. And he said, gosh, I got it all wrong. You know, I should have been on a high-fat diet. <laughs> one of the iconic athletes of all time. They're beginning to realize. And then in Australia, the athlete I love, well, I, there are many Australian athletes I love, but David Pocock, the Wallabies flanger, he's a, a, like me, a Zimbabwean who, who settled in Australia. And, and he adopted the Banting diet about three years ago and has, has become one of the great rugby players of the current era. And he just tells me how much he benefited from the diet. Absolutely. And as you know, the Australian cricket team and it's <laughs> so far reaching. And I think I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing your chat with Dave Scott, because as we know, um, he was in Iron War with um, Mark Allen and he worked closely with Dr. Phil Maffetone, who you know is um, probably one yeah. of the leading um, influences in terms of real food and definitely low carbohydrate, high fat. Absolutely. You know, and Phil... I only got to read his books after I'd written Real Meal Revolution, sorry, after I'd written The Law of Running. And, you know, I've, we had a wonderful debate with him. And he said, you know, Tim, I saw you were getting fat. And I just wished I could have told you, listen, you're insulin resistant, drop the carbs. Mm. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, Phil, if only you told me that and I believed you 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in the situation I am in now. So, but, but you're quite right. He, and, he influenced uh, Mark Allen dramatically. And uh, if only I'd understood in those days that the carbs are killing me and not helping athletes, I could have changed a lot earlier. Yeah, and I think that is fascinating. Like your personal situation is obviously um, what happened with your diabetes diagnosis, which is a story I'll get you to touch on in a moment. But with um, athletes, I think, you know, it would be really hard to know now what they know and not have these regrets that they didn't have this information in their hands, yeah, 20, 30, 40 years ago when they were competing and obviously often retiring early from whatever, whether it was, you know, these inflammatory yeah. conditions or um, injuries and, you know, now knowing that all could have been avoided. Yeah, exactly. You know, the 
the funny story is that Bruce Fordyce, who won the Comrades Marathon nine times and will never be matched, in, no one will ever win oh, that race, which is over 56 miles in South Africa, to win it nine times is just unbelievable because how can you be right on nine days and, and win the race over 56 miles? And we were the first to introduce the goose that athletes ingest during ultramarathons. And we call it FRN, Fordyce, Rose, and Noakes. Rose was another colleague, a marathon runner. So we were the first to introduce these things. And then, anyway, as we got older, we both started to show insulin resistance. In fact, all three of us, the F, the R, and the N. And I convinced Bruce that he had to change his diet, which he did. And he lost about 16 kilos on a, on a guy who's quite small. And his running improved dramatically. And, you know, he afterwards he came up to me and he said, you know, Tim, I only wish I'd known about this diet when I was competing. Because he said, I think I could have run the Comrades faster and lasted for more years than those nine years that I won. And so that is, it's a really, really interesting point that here's a guy who was committed to the high carbs in the 1980s and who now realizes that he might have done even better if he'd eaten a high fat diet. Fortunately, he doesn't blame me for putting on putting him on the high carb diet. So, <laughs> so we're still great friends. <laughs> still mates. Oh, that's good. And I know we obviously touched on your personal story in um, the first episode when you joined us um, on the show. But just give us a little bit of a summary there as to your own experience sure. with low carb, high fat, and obviously what happened before you saw the light, so to speak. Sure. So one of the pictures I show frequently is of myself graduating with my PhD in medicine in 1981. And on my, my right in the picture is my father, who had just been diagnosed with diabetes, and he was 68 years old, the exact age that I am today. And he was dead 10 years later with all the complications of diabetes, and he had multiple amputations, etc., and, and that's the reality of diabetes. So, so I have to face the question. In 10 years' time, will I have developed all those complications of type 2 diabetes? And I make the point when I show the slide, there I am at about, I'm about 32 years old, and I was running 140 kilometers a week. I was racing marathons regularly. I was very lean. But when I go back into my the evidence we collected on me as part of research studies, I was profoundly insulin resistant. My insulin levels in one particular experiment where we were carbohydrate loading were eight times normal, eight times normal. Uh, they were 40 units. And we take a, a va value of about five as being normal and anything above five as showing insulin resistance. So I was eight times normal values. And no one knew, of course, their resistance was. And it was so interesting that uh, we co I couldn't control my glucose even on a low-carb diet then. My glucose would become elevated during running, and it would stay elevated for some time afterwards. So I've got absolute evidence that, that I inherited the genes from my father for insulin resistance. And if you're insulin resistant, of course we now know, and you eat this high-carbohydrate diet, you're going to get diabetes somewhere along the line. And I suspect that I actually had diabetes from my mid-50s, but I only made the diagnosis in when I was 60 because that was the first time I had heard, heard about the low-carb diet, and I switched to it, and it immediately changed my health dramatically, and I lost a huge amount of weight, and my running improved dramatically, and I got rid of a whole bunch of other minor medical conditions. 
And and I've been on that diet now for six years, and the key is that my my glucose control has not worsened one iota. In fact, it's pretty still very very good, and I don't need insulin, and I'm not obese. Whereas if I had not gone onto this diet, six seven years later, I would be on maximum dose of insulin. I'd be 30 kilograms heavier. I would have renal damage. I'd have probably damage to my eyes, perhaps to my brain, and I don't have. Obviously, well, I, as far as I can see, I don't have any of those problems at the moment. So that's what the low-carb diet did for me. And, and it's part of the reason why I feel compelled to, to do something about it, because I couldn't help my father. We, we, we helped give him the wrong advice. He was on a high-carbohydrate diet. And if he was alive today, I could have helped him. But I couldn't then because I didn't understand the biology of diabetes and of insulin resistance. Tragic, but we see it all too often. You know, what advice would you give to a type two diabetic that's listening, that's under the guidance of either an endocrinologist or a diabetic educator who is giving them that advice about, um, you know, x portions of carbohydrates or x grams of carbohydrates with each meal? How do they get around that advice when we're obviously now understanding that type two is a reversible condition in many? Yeah, no, that's that's the the key question, and the answer is I tell people that my father didn't die of diabetes; he died of the treatment of diabetes, and that's the key. And if you're eating more than twenty five grams of carbohydrate a day and not exercising a, a reasonable amount, you're not doing the best for yourself. And you're quite correct. You know, I was in in San Francisco two weeks ago, this very day, Friday, two weeks ago, at Verta Health, and they are the online company that is showing that you can reverse type 2 diabetes or at least you can put it into remission. So they've had a clinical trial where they provide type 2 diabetics with all the information they require and they follow them and they force them to do things. So if their glucose is elevated, they say, okay, you're still eating too much carbohydrate, you're not using the right medications. And at the end of one year, these data will be released quite soon. They have 97% of their people are off insulin, which is or or reduce their insulin. And I can't tell you how many they reversed because that's still private information, confidential information. But they are seeing reversal of type 2 diabetes. And when that paper comes out in December, November, December, it will mean that if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet or you're prescribing a high carbohydrate diet for type 2 diabetics, that's medical malpractice. And that's going to happen sooner than we think. And I would just encourage people with type 2 diabetes who are being managed conventionally with insulin and high-carbohydrate diets, they must understand that this is a disease of vascular, disseminated vascular obstruction. That's the disease. And you, you develop that because of the insulin and excessive insulin production or use in injections. And you have to get off the insulin. And you have to keep your glucose as low as possible and your insulin requirements as low as possible. And the only way you can do that is by being extremely strict. No sugar and carbohydrates, maximum 25 grams per day. And that is the way to go. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just think that what Verta Health are doing is phenomenal. Our listeners will be very well-versed in Sami Inkerman. Obviously, he was featured in Run on Fat and is now 
the founder of Verta Health. I believe their goal is to reverse type 2 diabetes in 100 million people by the year 2025. So times are changing, as they say. Exactly. And I think they will probably reach their their goal. Maybe it is a bit uh, <laughs> hopeful, but knowing Sami, he's too clever. <laughs> and I, the amazing group of people that, that I met in San Francisco, they they're changing the world and they're so committed to this. It's, you know, it's not about the money. It's about changing the world. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, Absolutely. Fascinating. Can't wait to see what they achieve. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Absolutely. I wanted to ask for your thoughts as well around um, LCHF when we talk about heart disease. Now, one of the criticisms I'm sure that you hear is about the amount of saturated fat in the diet and we do have you know, doctors telling people to come off the full fat dairy and eggs and meat when their cholesterol's high and obviously it's a very big picture there. But what is the one piece of like research you cite or advice you give to someone that still thinks that eating these fats will give them heart disease? Well, I try to tell them that there are two theories of what causes heart disease. There's the cholesterol theory for which there's absolutely no evidence. And I went to that in some detail in The Real Meal Revolution. But, and I also address it again in the new book, Nutrition on Trial, that there is absolutely no evidence that cholesterol causes heart disease or that uh, eating a high-fat diet raises your cholesterol and causes heart disease. And, of course, it's very difficult for people to accept that because yeah. my profession – has done such a good job of brainwashing people into believing that cholesterol is the cause of heart disease and therefore you must take a statin if your cholesterol is elevated. And uh, that is the biggest scam in modern medicine. And I describe it as the, you know, the greatest error in mod modern medicine. So it's very difficult to get around that. And it's not going to happen overnight. And people are always scared about having an elevated cholesterol when in fact an elevated cholesterol is probably healthy, certainly at my age of 68 the higher the cholesterol, the better I will do in, in the long term and the less likely I am to have cancer. So, But then I say, okay, fine, I don't mind you teaching the cholesterol theory at medical schools and to your patients, but you must tell them the opposite, the, the, insulin, the insulin resistance model, which Re Gerald Raven described in the, the 1960s. So I take them through the insulin resistance theory, which is the opposite, which is that if you are insulin resistant and you eat a high carbohydrate diet with a lot of fructose, you develop non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that then causes the atherogenic dyslipidemia, the abnormal lipoprotein profile that is linked to coronary heart disease. And the key is that you're, you, you secrete these small dense LDL particles, and those are thought to be the lipoproteins that are atherogenic in the face of a high glucose and a high insulin. So to me, it's the combination of all those three factors. And then I say, if you eat a high-fat diet, you reverse those changes. You reduce your glucose, you reduce your insulin, and you convert these small, dense LDL particles into the larger particles. And that has been conclusively shown by Steve Finney and, uh, and Jeff Verlach in their studies, which they took a group with metabolic, pro metabolic uh, syndrome and put them on a high-fat diet and showed all these changes in their lipid profile that basically reversed all the, the known risk factors for coronary heart disease. And they, the Verta Health data, which will be coming out, show 
precisely the same, that, that you reverse these, the small dense LDL particles become big LDL particles, which are thought to be non-atherogenic. Yes. So that's what I try to tell the patient to the people when I, when I lecture, that I don't mind if you teach the cholesterol theory. That's fine. It's wrong, but carry on. But you have to give people the option. And if you teach the insulin resistant theory, then the answer is simple. You have to reduce the carbohydrate intake to get rid of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that will then sort out the atherogenic dyslipidemia, which is really causing the arterial disease. A beautiful summary. I'm sure there are plenty of people that will be playing that many times and hopefully to their loved ones <laughs> because, as you say, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's something that we absolutely have to change. It's another example of medical ma- malpractice in my mind. I would think so, yes, indeed. Mm. And uh, and the other point that, that people need to know is that the the statin theory is completely wrong. I mean, the benefits of using statins are so small as to be negligible. You're much better off doing other things, going out and becoming an athlete and doing lots of exercise and eating a high-fat diet. That'll do much more for your health than, than taking statins. Yes, I completely agree. So <laughs> two final questions for you, Tim. I appreciate that um, you're a very busy man. I... Um, I believe you're in retirement at the moment, but obviously you've been published in more than 750 scientific books and articles. You've been cited in more than 1,600 um, literature, pieces of literature and you're an A1 scientist by the National Research Foundation of South Africa for a second five-year term. Um, obviously, you've been extremely busy, but what does retirement look like for you? Well, it's been, I've been retired for three years and my wife will say, but you haven't retired at all because we've been fighting this case. And, you know, one of the things that I was so lucky about was that the case was delayed and that I didn't have to give my testimony for about two years. And during that period, I really went into detail and prepared the case very, very strongly. So I spent a lot of that time researching the literature, even to a greater extent than I already knew it. And I now realize that I, I do have a, a strong understanding of the nutrition of heart disease and uh, the low-carb diet, which, which, well, it takes five or six years to get that information. So I've spent three years doing that, and I've spent the time also writing the book. And I've done one or two other books as well. I wrote a book for children called Ra- uh, Raising Superheroes. And uh, that that is actually the best book I've ever seen on nutrition for children and how you should feed them. And the science was the basics on which we based our defense in the trial. And so that took a lot of time. And then there's this other book. And in the meantime, we've also been driving the Noakes Foundation. We've raised substantial amounts of money overseas for doing research on what happens when people reverse their type 2 diabetes. So Sami Inkinen's Verta Health Studies show that you can reverse or you can put the disease into remission, but no one knows exactly why this happens. And so we're setting up a, a, a large-scale trial where we're taking people with type 2 diabetes and we're putting them a group on the low-carb diet and the other group continue to eat their normal diets. And we're studying their physiology in a way that is as complete as we know it's possible to do. And the only thing we probably won't be studying is their brains, but if otherwise we'll be studying all their physiology and particularly their liver glucose production, which we, which clearly has to be what changes that they start to normalize their liver glucose production. 
And so we'll be doing that over the next two or three years. And so I'm directing that research as well in my retirement. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you take your wife for an overseas holiday so she feels like you're actually retired at some point of the year. Absolutely. No, she's very supportive of this, this good work and and we do. We're having many more retirement trips and holidays than ever in the past. So we're in good in a good space. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful. And final question: How's your running going? Well, it's been pretty good. But when I retired, so let me tell you what happened. So when I retired, you see, now the first thing I did was, of course, now I'm going to train like I used to. You see, so I started running an hour and a half, up to two hours a day, and. Within about uh, three months, I developed a stress fracture of the tibial plateau, which I'd never, I've never had a stress fracture in my life. And uh, the problem was, what I've realized is that why I loved running was that, that feeling when you're going a little bit faster. And I never was a great runner, but when I ran a particular kilometer in under, say, three minutes 45, I felt like I was flying. And that was what I really liked doing. And so now I'm so slow that the only time I can run fast is when I'm running downhill. So, so, so all my running, what would happen was I'll run up the hill. We, I live in quite a hilly area. So I'd run up the hill for the first half hour. And then for the next 45 minutes, I'd be running downhill. And I'd be sprinting as hard as I could. And that's what caused the stress fracture. Now, of course, being a doctor, I wasn't going to have an x-ray done because I don't want to see what my joints look like. So I'd... I never had an x-ray and this injury got, it just didn't seem to heal. It took seven months. And the only time it really started to heal completely was when the trial ended. So I'm sure that I had a quite a lot of discomfort all the time until the trial ended. And then suddenly the discomfort went. So I have to think that there was a strong psychological component to it all. Not that I didn't have an injury. I clearly had an injury, but the recovery was dependent on me finishing the trial. So now I'm running pain-free, which is fantastic at 68. All the running I've done to have joints that are still working reasonably well is is a great privilege. A stress fracture and lots of stress from the trial, obviously. Now, well, mostly resolved anyway, and I wish you the best of luck with the appeal. It's been fascinating to hear more detail of the trial. I definitely followed it closely, and I will put some links in the show notes for those that want to learn more. We're all looking forward to reading Nutrition on Trial. Thank you, Tim, for everything that you continue to do. We are all so grateful. Thanks, Steph, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak, and thank you for a fantastic interview. I've really, really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Hope to have you on the show again soon. Until next time. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch.